You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The seventh annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2017. The conference was generously supported by the College of Arts, Social Sciences and Celtic Studies at NUI Galway, the School of Humanities at NUI Galway, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Disciplines of History and English at NUI Galway, the Women's History Association of Ireland and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Jared Farrell from Trinity College Dublin. His paper was entitled the distribution of land between native Irish and servitors in the Ulster Plantation. What I'm going to do is just give a sort of an overview of a project I'm working on at the moment in Trinity, which is to basically to identify to as precise a degree as possible uh, all of the lands granted in the Ulster Plantation and present this as a sort of online resource within a year or two that should be finished, um, should be like fully sourced and include information on grantees and their subsequent fate in the following decades, up to 1641, I guess, um, and hopefully we'll find some kind of printed, published form as well, though that has yet to be determined. Um, the first thing that probably might strike people is that this sounds like the kind of thing that might already have been done, and it has been done in bits and pieces through various random articles and monographs over the years, but it's never been approached systematically, and it's never really been done with a great deal of accuracy, uh, not because of a lack of ability or anything previous generations of scholars, but just because there's tools available now, uh, search engines and digital resources that mean you can approach it you know, uh, much more accurately than you could in the past. Um, so I don't need to go into too much detail, I think, context of the Ultra Plantation, because everyone here is very familiar with it. Uh, just to say that there were projects being mooted already before the flight of the Earls uh, to introduce, to reward uh, government servitors in Ulster with lands, and these be the, obviously these become much more ambitious uh, after the, the flight of the Earls and then O'Doherty's rising. And you see an interesting, I think, uh, I wouldn't call it a power struggle, but a sort of manoeuvring among various factions in the administration, um, promoting their own idea of how the plantations should look. Uh, so Chichester, uh, the Lord Deputy at the time, is recognising that he does, he, although he does champion the servitors to a great extent, he's seen as their champion, he does recognise that the people with capital, people with money, will have to be brought in to Ulster to finance the plantation because a lot of the ex-military men who had formed the servitor class are uh, that's something they lack as capital. So um, the plans that emerge over the winter of 1608-1609, Chichester remains in Dublin, and these are sort of trashed out in London, and he's not really happy. The next slide that I showed briefly was, that is the plan as it originally emerged in the spring of 1609, which Chichester was sort of horrified, maybe that's a strong word to use, but um, his idea originally was a sort of a small leavening of undertakers among the servitors and the Irish, and what he finds they're planning is... You can see for yourself, there's a huge amount of far more uh, undertakers than servitors and Irish freeholders. And in his opinion, I mean, not only that he wants to reward his former cronies, but uh, he also he's uh, concerned that the Irish will have to be given a stake in the plantation, otherwise they'll just destabilise the whole thing like they did in Munster. So there is some indications, a year and a half of planning and... Uh, debating follows and this is, as far as I can tell although this is not an exact science this is the number of grantees of each category that emerges in the autumn of 1610 and the, the years that follow according to the patent rolls 
Um, so you can see that some of Chichester's concerns were addressed, not all of them, but to some extent they were addressed. Um, so just to give a broader picture of the plantation as it was planned, normally when you get a map of the plantation, you get something like this, which shows each category. You're, you're aware the red is English, the blue is Scots, and the green is to be shared with Irish and Servitors. Um, in theory, the Irish are meant to be expelled from the red and the blue areas, but we all know that it doesn't pan out like that. But uh, So the, the areas I'm going to look at there are the, ones in, the green ones uh, to be shared by servitors and natives. And th this is a useful map. It's often used. It's, I think, based, based on Moody and Hunter's map from the New History of Ireland, maybe back in the 70s, uh, which most people just copied, basically. Uh, but um, it does give you a good overview of the plantation. But if you really want to start forming hypotheses about what's really going on in the Ulster plantation... Not only in planning, but I think in execution. I think it's to some extent neglected the execution of the plantation, not just intentions. Um, this is just the servant and native precinct, so I've left the other ones out because I, I haven't done them yet, basically. I'm halfway through this project. Um, you end up with a map looking more like this. As you can see, there's a lot of gaps. Uh, that's not just land that wasn't granted to anyone, though there is a certain amount of church land, and land granted to the free schools and so forth, and Trinity College as well. Um, I think when you do this... Um, well, the best way to explain actually what I'm doing is just give an example of what the work involves. So the evidence, what we have by way of evidence, is mainly patent roles like this, which say, uh, here's a patent for Donald McSweeney of Fanad, and uh, he's going to get these, what were referred to as quarters in Donegal. It's a, it's a land unit specific to Donegal. Um, what we have to do is basically just um, identify the extent of these lands today. So this, in this example, I've got most of them uh, more than... Uh, maybe this is average, it's hard to tell really. Uh, but there are cases, for example, I mean, you can see that Glinsk, uh, Glinsk is obviously Glinsk today. Many of them are fairly self-evident. Some of the identifications are a bit more dicey. Uh, some of these you can corroborate as well through other sources from the time. So in that case, I think it's from a McSweeney's poem book from the 16th century. You can use all sorts of things, and I'm sure there's things I've missed out there. Uh, my sort of MO is to, if in doubt, just not don't make an identification between a these strange anglicised forms that were recorded in the patents at the time, just just leave them out, basically. But um, as, as you can tell, I've got most of them there. Uh, and then if you map them, you can pretty get a, a pretty good idea of the lands that uh, this, the Donald McSweeney uh, got in the plantation precinct of, of Kilmacrennan, that is. Yeah, that's what uh, David was talking about in his, his talk, actually. Um, the, the thing is about this, though, I mean, as I said, it's not an exact science. Uh, there is a certain fundamental ambiguity about the data and a, a sort of messiness, if you like, and I think it's better to recognise and um, accommodate this within the, the way I'm going to present it online rather than try and uh, impose some kind of order on the data that it doesn't have. Uh, there's no definitive list, for example, of who got what in the plantation or even how many grantees there were, for example, because of the way, the sort of haphazard way they were recorded. Um, so um, in this particular guy's case, I'll just go back, there's two, there's one townland, for example, which is uh, awarded the, uh, to a, another guy, another McSweeney, Man Manus McNeil, um, and it's hard to know, was that a mistake? Was it, they were intended to share it or not? Uh, my, my hunch is, in this case, it was just a mistake, and there were loads of mistakes like this. There was a, there was a commission set up uh, within two years, I think, to try and adjudicate in disputes like this. So I'm just going to go through, have a look at as, as many of the precincts as I can in 20 minutes. Um, that I've done. Uh, this is um, Donegal. It's thinner than that. The screen is, for some reason, stretched. But anyway, uh, these are the lands of Torlock MacArthur O'Neill. This is the grandson of Torlock Lennock and the son of Art, his 
his father was Art O'Neill, who helped Henry Dockra sort of secure the Loch Foyle area at the end of the Nine Years' War. So he's been rewarded here, but I think he's a good example of, uh, of someone who you might think did well on the plantation, but I think it's an example of someone who, there's, a, I think, a widespread misconception. I don't know how widespread it is, but the so-called deserving Irish did well on the plantation. You hear this said in recent years, and I think this is, guy's a good example. There's good evidence this guy was not happy with what he got. He was, uh, his, native, his own lands were in Straban, the area around Newtown Stewart today, and he's been moved across the Sperrins to these what are, are fairly barren lands, really, in the foothills of the Sperrins. And I'm not sure that was the main problem. It was just being moved away, uh, not so much from his home territory, but from his followers. And uh, the next guy up here is exactly the same, really. This is um, he would have used the nephew of Hugh O'Neill, the Earl of Tyrone, the son of Cormac McBaron, and he's given these. But these are these lands. His home territory is down in Clogher Barony, which is, should be somewhere down there, I think, a bit further up. Um, and I, I don't think the main problem for these guys was so much being uh, moved away from their home territory. It was being moved away from their followers. Um, uh, and you can find, I mean, administrators deliberately did this. They understood it. Uh, instructions to the surveyors in 1609 dictated that the natives were to be dispersed. And John, probably John Davis, it's not completely sure that he's writing this. These are instructions, uh, these are uh, guidelines to how the plantation should proceed, where the Irish should be put. And, uh, I, and he's just saying it's safest to make the proportion where they're given to consist of diverse parcels, not lying together, but scattered so that they, if they have a mind to steer, they uh, won't have the opportunity to do so easily, to conspire or to combine with their tenants and followers, which I think is key because in Gaelic society it's really characterised by um, traditional ties between some families with certain uh, ruling families. And I think this is still the case up to 1641. It's amazing. You can see how uh, the O'Reillys are able to uh, rally their traditional followers, and uh, even on a smaller level, the, for example, the, the O'Neills of Kinard is able to get the McQuaids of North Monaghan to follow them into battle. Like, th these are all ties going back a century or more, probably. Um, in the case of Brian Crosser, he's again an example of someone who is clearly antagonistic towards the plantation um, for various reasons. Well, first of all, his father is imprisoned for, on no charges for the rest of his life, um, which is about a decade, I think. Um, the London companies tried to get their hands on his lands. That was the next... Yeah, uh, which are, they say, are in the barony of Lockens Holland, I think it's called, um, which it's inconclusive. It doesn't seem like they succeed, but um, he, he also believes himself to be a victim of a perceived slight at the Assizes and that the judges were looking for an opportunity to arrest and execute him. He gets involved in the 1615 conspiracy for which he, he is indeed arrested and, and executed. Um, so even though it didn't work out for him, Brian Cross is a good example of an individual who fit the bill. Uh, when the government were deciding which Irish uh, it should choose as grantees, they were basically trying to walk a line between choosing people who were leading figures in Gaelic society who might um, influence and control the native population with, because of their traditional sort of uh, prestige in, in Gaelic society, but at the same time not too powerful or commanding of too many followers that they might uh, destabilise things. Uh, so someone like Niall Garve O'Donnell and Donald O'Cahan, uh, you can see them fitting into the la latter category, that they were individuals whose ambitions couldn't be contained by the plantation. But Brian, they, they believed he fell under the, 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 the category of uh, you know, prominent, but not too prominent. And you find examples of these all over Ulster. So the, the next... Uh, these guys, for example, Phelan and Brian O'Hanlon, these are children of Ogiogo O'Hanlon, who was involved in uh, one of the few members of the Gaelic elite who really rallied to O'Doherty's cause in 1608. Um, I, I think mainly because he was married to his sister. Uh, and he, 
his father receives a pension in lieu of lands on the plantation. So these clearly they, they deport their father to Sweden and he ends up fighting in, in the Spanish Netherlands, I think. Um, so they, they were two, they were, uh, their grandfather was the last O'Hanlon, which were the traditional rulers of this territory under the Gaelic order. And they're clearly not people they want as freeholders in the plantation. But the grandchildren, they are considered to be acceptable, uh, suitable to take part in the plantation. Um, this is the same precinct. This is just next to Nuri there, uh, where Nuri is today, I think it was then. Um, Henry McShane O'Neill, this is the, one of the sons of D. Shane O'Neill. Uh, so the, because they were enemies of Hugh O'Neill, the Earl of Tyrone, of course, they were considered to be uh, staunch allies of the English for, uh, at the time of the flight, definitely, they were on a pension, both him and his brother Con, who I'll get to in a second. Um, they were actually moved from Fermanagh, which is kind of sounds strange to me when I first came across this fact. They were living in Fermanagh just prior to the plantation um, and they were moved and uh, the original plans actually had him getting lands in this precinct of Tyr Kennedy in Fermanagh um, but they moved him about 70 kilometres to the east and I think this, uh, this is, is sort of testament to a policy which you come across time and time again when you look at where the grantees are of splitting up potentially troublesome families not just um, splitting up uh, ruling figures in Gaelic society from their followers but also within families and within sects uh, we'll see this again in Cavan, and uh, the other guy who gets a big chunk of land in Turkey, Kennedy and Fermanagh is this. This is Brian Maguire. He was the brother of the Kukonic Maguire, uh, flight of the Earls Kukonic Maguire, who um, the, the, both of their, their um, actually were grandchildren of Shane O'Neill on their mother's side, which suggests to me a reason why the McShane O'Neills are living in this part of Fermanagh at this time. I can't marriage at the elite level of Gaelic society being. Uh, always, almost always political, very little to do with romance, I think. Um, and the fact that Brian is marrying into a pro-English branch of the O'Neills, I think, as well, is uh, who are bitterly opposed to Hugh O'Neill, it fits in with the sort of staunchly pro-English Im uh, image. Well, he was pro-English, uh, very pro-English of this Brian Maguire. He's one of the few... Um, when his brother was planning the flight of the Earls, he was the one who acquired the boat and everything. Uh, he kept the secret from him, from him. Uh, because he was worried he, he would ratten him, basically, uh, uh, to the government. Um, so everything we know about Brian suggests that he did actually try to make a go of it in Plantation Ulster, and uh, by 1622 he's reported to live very civil after the English manner, and he seems to have regarded these traditional expectations that he act as a focus for retainers and followers, which a lot of Gaelic, um, big Gaelic land, uh, Irish landowners were subject to. He seems to regard this as a hassle. There's a report that he, he moved to the Pale uh, to avoid the accustomed great reports of his kinsmen and others of his house. And he was uh, clearly regarded as a traitor by the Irish in the 1640s uh, and by the 1650s he's in really bad condition because they were constantly plundering him. Um, the, the quote I have is... Uh, occasioned by the several plunderings made upon him by the rebels for his faithfulness to the English interest. Uh, so, moving on. Um, so this is, this is Clanali precinct to the west of Tyr Kennedy. And I think this is an interesting one because, especially when you make maps of these things and you really see how the, the, the grantees are distributed on the ground uh, in reality, you kind of spot patterns here, for example. Um, this, the distribution of this precinct, I mean, it, it's characterised by a very, very, very large number of grantees uh, by the way, just incidentally, uh, this is a kind of preliminary. I'm, I'm trying to figure out a way of presenting this online when I do put it up online. I, I actually, I'm not sure if it really works, but um, the horizontal lines are meant to signify Irish, as you can see there, and the, the, the vertical uh, servitors. Uh, I'm not sure if this is really the best way to do it, if it's, if it's clear enough. But anyway, um, 
you get a, lar- a very large number of grantees here, uh, most of whom get very fragmented proportions. They get some lands down. I mean, Clonali is a sort of... Uh, this barony is basically sort of glacial trough with Belmore Mountain in the north and uh, Kulka down there in the south. Um, uh, and so you get, most of the people get a few, couple of townlands down in the valley and then some up in the mountains. Uh, almost every case, it's, it's remarkable. Like this guy, for example, he gets, uh, well, he gets both sides, really, of the, of the, of the valley. Uh, that is the son of Hugh Maguire, the leading Maguire in the Nine Years' War. So it's, it's kind of surprising these guys get land in the plantation considering their, their father was uh, attainted and uh, but and he, I think, yeah, it was him. Yeah, I mean, a few years earlier, just before the plantation, um, there was these plans for a so-called natives plantation in Cavan and Fermanagh, like they did in Monaghan, where they created all these Irish freeholders and were, were not planning to give much land at all to outsiders, but that's not what emerged. But that this guy was originally planned to get the entire barony, so you can imagine in the event he was probably disappointed what he, what he actually got, a few sort of fragments of, of townlands. Um, this, it's the same as in the case of his brother. He has, so they have several brothers in the family who get lands, and it's exactly the same again. He gets some, a bit, bit of land on the banks of the River Arney, and uh, and he gets some sort of barren uh, hillside there up in the up in the north. Um, of the others, you can identify in Fermanagh. It's, it's not easy because you're trying to distinguish basically five different Brian Maguires from each other. This guy is. Uh, an interesting example because he's often he's up to now I think he's been misidentified as a McCabe based on uh, George Hill. It's a fairly much it's a much reproduced source from the 19th century. Uh, a list of plantation grantees and it's full of mistakes. I mean you know it's it's of its time and you can't blame the guy for that. Um, he, this guy is identified as McCabe, but he's not. He's a Mac, uh, the anglicised form. He's always his name is always recorded as Macanabal or. Macanab or something like that, but uh, it's Mac Macanab, the son of the abbot of Lisgool, um, who his father was cattle of the abbot of Lisgool, who died in the 1590s, and the the abbot, the, it's, it's in that sort of little bit sticking out in the north uh, east of Armagh. So it's about it's, I wrote it down here. It's about 10 kilometres, I think, to the to the lands he actually gets from the lands he inherited, because he did inherit some of the abbey's lands when it was sort of secularised. Um, but they were taken off him, and he gets this, uh, again, three townlands, some down uh, in the lowlands and some up in the mountains. Um, this is actually a good juncture to address uh, one of the big questions surrounding the apportionment of the land of the Irish, was where they given the, the poorer land. Uh, this is often argued that they were largely banished to the mountains and to the bogs, and you can tell by the maps that this isn't universally the case. Um, it's, I think it's important. For me, one of the most salient points here is that... Um, the government at the time didn't have the kind of uh, detailed survey of land quality uh, which would have enabled them to systematically as- assign the poorer land to the Irish in the plantation. Uh, it just wasn't really possible. And even the plantation, the geography of Ulster, um, especially inland parts like this and Donegal, it was the ends of the earth, basically, from, from the English point of view. Uh, although it should be noted, not from the Irish or the Scots point of view, West, you know, Scots and the Western Isles, they've been passing back and forth for centuries. Um, but the geography was very, very poorly understood, so... It wasn't possible for them to assign the poorer land to the Irish in terms of land quality. And some historians have tried to correlate um, like land grants to land quality using, for example, the Griffiths survey, from uh, the Griffiths evaluation, I think, from the 19th century, um, which to me seems futile because the, the state had nowhere near to this level of, of information at the time. Um, there was also, I think, factors were more important uh, when they were choosing where to locate the Irish was... Um, accessibility, uh, proximity to waterways, ports, uh, markets and coastlines, so possible access to foreign allies. And this is a time when 
although we know it didn't happen, uh, it was still widely believed that Hugh O'Neill was on his way back with Spanish help, maybe. Um, so there were very there were very heightened security concerns about where they were going to put the Irish. This is again John Davies writing at the time the plantation has been planned. I won't read it all out, but it's basically saying that the uh, uh, coastline and were areas that are important for the trans, you know, the transportation infrastructure, which are all waterways at the time. Roads play very little role in the transport infrastructure of Ulster at this time. Uh, would have to be given to uh, men of special trust and desert. Um, no, it was not the Irish, um, uh, and to cut off the intercourse of intelligence to the Irish and so forth. So these security concerns were, I think, at the time the plantation was being planned, more uh, foremost in their minds than uh, than land quality or anything like that. Um, so often when you get a discussion um, about where you know the grantees are placed, it's often in terms of that map I showed earlier <coughs> of what you know what precincts were awarded to what category of grantee. I don't really think that tells us a lot actually about the government's intentions in locating people. First of all, the English and the Scottish precincts were awarded apparently by a lottery by draw, you know, so you can't really. Uh, read any intent into that. The Irish ones, uh, the, the Irish and conservative precincts were taken out of the pot before the draw took place. So you can tell that they did what they were planning to locate more Irish and Calvin especially. Uh, I mean, moving on to Calvin actually. Uh, it's the precinct of Tully Garvey. I'll go straight on to this guy. Um, uh, Calvin is a bit different because none of its native leaders fled with O'Neill, so there was, there was no real decent you know, pretext to confiscate huge areas, even though they, they did. But a, a greater proportion of land is left in Irish hands. Um, as I mentioned, there, there was a, a plan for a, a so-called natives plantation. I don't really like the phrase, but it's used in the literature um, where they just settled the county by creating lots of Irish freeholders. And uh, the, the actual plant, the dispensation of the plantation, it's not a million miles away from this uh, in Cavan itself, um, Loch Tee is the most prized barony. That's given to English undertakers, and the Scots get two uh, less prized baronies. And, uh, so anyway, this is Tully, Har- Tully Garvey, uh, Cavan, where there, there's eight Irish and there's four servitors. And the, the main guy here is uh, the, uh, Mel Morg. I, I can never pronounce this name properly. I don't know if anyone knows, really. <laughs> uh, this is the grandson of Shane, usually uh, known as Sir John in English sources, the, the, the main O'Reilly in the during the reign of Elizabeth, and he, he'd been recognised as having um, his property rights in Calvin had been recognised, but then he went into rebellion with Hugh O'Neill, and he's attainted and regarded as a traitor. But his son joins the English, not this guy's father, uh, he dies at the Yellow Ford. So because of this, partly, uh, he gets a fairly generous grant of lands in this precinct, although I also think it's because his mother is a butler, uh, the niece of the Earl of Ormond, which I think played an important role as well in this. Um, Again, it's like the, the Shane McHugh, uh, McGuire, uh, th- this guy, was, Chichester is arguing as late as 1608 that the entire barony of Loch Tee be given to this guy. Loch Tee was really the economic hub of Cavan. It's where Cavan Town is, and uh, at, that t- at that time anyway, it's, it's definitely the economic hub and the most prized barony. And they're, they're talking about giving the entire barony to him. But as we know, things change. The role of the Irish becomes toned down and less important in the plantation over the next year or so. Um, he's a young man at the time he gets these lands, but he's dead by 1617, and his lands pass to his uncle Hugh, who already who got a grant of lands in the plantation as well. Um, that's Hugh's, uh, his uncle's lands, with the lands he inherited from his nephew. So he's a very substantial landowner by the 1620s. It's about 13,000 acres or something. Um, uh, when he dies in 1628, he's in considerable debt. Um, yeah, and a lot of these lands have passed to various old English families and 
what remains is in the possession of his, his son, Philip O'Reilly, who's quite well known from the Rising. He's known as Cor Cornel Philip. Um, and he succeeds to the title of Chief O'Reilly, whatever that means, by the, the 1630s. Um, and on the death of uh, that's on the death of his granduncle, uh, Mel Morgan McHugh, this guy who got lands in Clanmatton. I'll just race through these in the time I have left. Just to say, but this most of the uh, native Irish uh, grantees and this precinct have names like Nugent, uh, Fleming, Fitzsimons. So these are big old English uh, families. You find with Cavan, especially the southern part, its hinterland is really the, the northern pale. Um, it's, it's, you find, even though it's a part of the plantation, if you're reading the state papers and the depositions, stuff, it's, it's really more, has more in common with the northern pale in terms of trade links and so forth. And again, you see here the servitors, they get access uh, to the water, to around Loch Sheelan here, and then uh, Castle Rahan, uh, the, the servitors more or less monopolise the area around... Um, that small river at the bottom of Loch Raymour, which I can't remember the name now, but that, flow, that goes down to, that's an important route south to Kells and eventually to the Boyne and Navan. So these areas are pretty much all monopolised by the servitors. I'll, I'll wrap it up there um, just to say, I'm only halfway through this project, but you can, you can already tell when you start out looking at it, where, when you see it really in front of you, where the grantees are. And even here, just very quickly, I mean, this is, that border is Loch Tee, which I said is the main, most important barony in Cavan, really. And you can see uh, the servitors have almost all the land uh, along the waterways next to Loch Tewer, which is an English undertaker barony uh, precinct. Um, when you see it in front of you, you know, you can, rather than just looking at the, that map of which category or which precinct, uh, if you really go into details, you get a much more nuanced picture of the Ulster plantation in practice as opposed to simply stated objectives. And when the, the project is finished uh, and complete, I think it'll be a really useful tool, you know, hopefully to, to contribute to that. So, thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.